Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Ohio can be creepy. Everyone in in Ohio has a story. Something they saw in the woods or the side of the road. Something that they can't explain. But what you may not know is that according to cryptozoologists, Ohio is a hotbed for creature activity. From Bigfoot desk creatures to massive kidnapping reptiles. To all other things that go bump in the night. The stories that come out of Ohio are some of the most unique in the country. In 1955, a man was traveling through Loveland, Ohio, when he saw three mysterious creatures. The man claims that he saw the figures, which were about three to four feet tall, conversing with one another. The creatures had leathery skin and the faces of frogs. In addition to their amphibian attributes, They also had a wand that they waved over their heads, which naturally scared the passerby. The stories of the Loveland Frogmen have been repeated throughout the decades, with the most recent sighting taking place in 2016. A young couple was out playing Pokemon Go when they claimed to see a giant frog-like creature that stood on two legs and walked towards them. There were seven U.S. presidents born in Ohio. They were Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, William Taft, and Warren Harding. The state's also nicknamed as the mother of modern presidents. 
around 20 miles north of Loveland is a place called Crosswick, Ohio. Although the monster hasn't been spotted in nearly 200 years, the legend of the Crosswick monster is still told in the area. According to reports, two young boys were playing on the banks of a small creek when they were startled by a massive snake-like creature. The monster sprouted arms and snatched one of the boys, dragging him nearly a hundred yards to a massive sycamore tree that was assumed to be its den. The Crosswick monster dropped the child just outside a hole in the tree's trunk. The 26-foot diameter tree was eventually chopped through by dozens of men from the town, and when the serpent creature reappeared, the men noted that it was between 12 and 14 feet tall. The monster escaped the men crashing through a fence before darting into a cavern. The full description read, It is described as being 30 to 40 feet long, 12 to 14 feet tall when erect, 16 inches in diameter, and legs 4 feet long. It's covered with scales like a lizard's, of black and white color with large yellow spots. Its head is about 16 inches wide with a long forked tongue and the mouth inside is a deep red. Although the Crosswick monster was never seen again, it's remembered as one of the most believable cryptid experiences in Ohio as more than 60 men claimed to have witnessed it. According to NASA, 25 astronauts are Ohio natives, having made nearly 80 space flights, with three of those flights being trips to the moon. Have you heard about the Chicago Mothman? If you're not aware, in the last few years, Chicago, specifically O'Hare Airport, has been dogged with reports of all kinds of people, professionals, maintenance workers, you name it. People from the airport and surrounding area have spotted what they are calling the Chicago Mothman. In April of this year, there was a report submitted to singularfortian.com. And I'm going to give you the report that was cited on the website. Manuel Navarrete of UFO Clearinghouse received a report recently from a woman claiming to be an employee of the Chicago Aviation Department who said that she saw a seven to eight foot tall black winged creature with glowing red eyes after leaving work at O'Hare International Airport at approximately 9 p.m. on April 15th. According to the woman's report, I wanted to relate a possible sighting of the Chicago Mothman that I had on April 15, 2021 at approximately 9 p.m. at Chicago O'Hare. I initially was not going to report this 
and had kept it to myself for fear of someone thinking that I've lost my mind and was just seeing things. That changed when I read the sighting that was posted on Facebook about the gentleman who had the Mothman sighting not even two blocks from where I work. The sighting prompted me to look up your website and eventually send this report to you. I work for the Chicago Department of Aviation at the office located on the airport grounds. I've worked there for about nine years and had previously worked at the airport in another capacity for five years prior. I know the, I know the airport like the palm of my hand and I've heard the stories that people tell about all the strange goings on that happen with surprising frequency. My setting happened after I stayed late to catch up on work and had left around 9 p.m. As I walked out the building into the parking lot, I heard what I could only describe as wings fluttering, kind of like you hear when a bird is going to take off or land. I dismissed it as just geese, as the airport has literally hundreds of them that hang around doing whatever geese seem to do. What followed was a loud screech. Nothing like a goose's honk, but a very, very loud, ear-splitting screech, like what you'd hear when a train's applying its brakes. But it was different as it went from a high octave to a lower one and then high again. I know it was not the train as the train tracks are on the other side of the airport about three to four miles away. I continued walking toward my car when I heard the screech again and it sounded like it was coming from behind me. I turned and looked toward the trees over by the road and saw what looked like two red eyes looking right at me. I sat there looking at these eyes for what seemed like an eternity. I couldn't move and it felt like the air was being sucked out of my lungs, almost like I was having an asthma attack. I saw this thing emerge from around the trees. It was illuminated from behind by the warehouses that were across the road, and it must have been seven to eight feet tall and it was black. About this time a large truck was coming down the road, and it shot into the air and was gone in the matter of a second. I stood there for a few seconds, still too afraid to move. When I finally came to my senses and practically sprinted for my car, I could not get into my car fast enough, and as I closed the door, I heard the screech again. I turned on my car and left as quickly as I could. The woman continues on with her report and states, I am not one for over-exaggerations, but I felt almost as if I was being stalked. I felt sick to my stomach for two or three days after that encounter, and it took just as long for the feelings of paranoia to finally go away. It was the feeling of utter and complete hopelessness that disturbed me the most, and it helped contribute to my hesitancy of telling anyone. I didn't even tell my boyfriend of this until after I had decided to send this to you. Navarrete went on to say that he was able to communicate with the witness via email, and after lengthy discussions about her job at the Chicago Aviation Department, she proceeded to tell me about her sighting. The office where she works is located almost directly in line with the structure where the previously submitted wing humanoid sighting occurred, he noted. 
It is approximately 300 yards away and within visual sight of the office. The next sighting referenced by Navarrete came from a man claiming to have seen a large humanoid owl while working as a shuttle bus driver at O'Hare on April 21st. According to Navarrete, the woman advised that she parked on the other side of the building facing the tarmac and cargo offloading area for a pair of long warehouses that house a multitude of air cargo companies based out of O'Hare. It's also within a block of a reported sighting last year by a cargo company employee that was submitted to Phantoms and Monsters in approximately 2019. Navarrete verified the details of the woman's sighting and asked her if she saw anything as she initially walked out, to which she replied that she had not because she was checking her phone and did not look up. He went on to ask her about the sound of flapped wings, and the woman told him that there are geese in the area nearly every single day, and she just assumed it was a goose that was in the parking lot or nearby and really paid it no mind. The ear-splitting screech was another matter entirely, and the woman reportedly said that even now the thought of that sound sends chills down her spine and brings up a feeling of fear in her. She compared the sound to train brakes, but modulating from high to low, and it would fade off before coming back again. As for the sighting of the entity itself, said Navarrete, the witness said, that from the moment she saw it, she was frozen in fear and could not move. Her mind was only focused on the eyes, and everything else seemed to fade into the background. Navarrete said that when the entity came out from behind the trees, it stood there and stared at her for, for a few seconds before the vehicle interrupted the encounter. When asked if it made any advancement toward her, the witness said that it did not. Yet, she felt as if it was sizing her up or stalking her. When the vehicle coming down the road caused the creature to fly away, the witness stated that she felt spellbound for a few seconds, almost as if she'd been in a trance. The woman was only able to describe the creature as black, skinny, and tall, approximately seven to eight feet tall, and that it had glowing red eyes. The wings were also black and had an estimated 10-foot wingspan. She said that from the time the entity unfurling its wings to the time it was in the air was only a matter of maybe one or two seconds, after which it was out of sight. Navarrete concluded that after speaking with the witness, it is this investigator's opinion that she did witness something and that this case merits further investigation. A visit to the site of the incident will be conducted soon, and all photos and data obtained will be posted on the website for all to see, he added. Any subsequent updates will be shared by the Singular Fortean Society as they are received. O'Hare International Airport has been the epicenter of recent winged humanoid sightings in the Lake Michigan Mothman investigation. There have been over a dozen sightings coming from the airport itself since August of 2019. There have also been reports coming from surrounding areas of Lake Michigan, including states that surround the lake. 
sightings have begun in the spring of 2017, but more historical accounts are being reported as more people have become aware of this phenomenon. One of the reports came in dated from back to 1957. So this is an ongoing investigation happening. There are a lot of sightings. There are a lot of sightings inside Chicago itself. And um, maybe we'll do a show just specifically on what is happening in Chicago with the Mothman. All right. That's all the time we have for this story. On to the next. Julia's story is a case from Devil's Den the Reckoning by Terry Lovelace. And in Devil's Den the Reckoning, Terry actually received numerous emails from people who have claimed to be abducted and their stories. And in the book, he has included a few of the stories that he received. And Julia's was one of them. So this happened to Julia when she was just a little girl. And it also happened to her sister as well. And although she doesn't clearly remember it being an abduction when it occurred, the things she remembers are told, but she had nightmares for many years after the incident happened, and actually throughout her whole life. And she never wanted to be regressed or anything like that. But through her dreams, she believes she knows what happened to her. And this is Julia's story. This next story comes from Devil's Den, The Reckoning by Terry Lovelace. It's case number five in the book. It occurs in St. Lake Charles, Louisiana, and it is Julia's story. She sent an email to Terry Lovelace. She's a 69-year-old nurse anesthesiologist. You do not dream under anesthesia, she says. It's a fact. It's just darkness. And the light of recovery is when you come out of it. So this happened to Julia when she was nine years old and her sister Molly was seven. It occurred in rural Oklahoma while she was visiting grandparents. The girls usually played in a massive front yard in the, and in the back of the yard, there was a barn. There was a farm tractor. There was also a small pond that was about eight feet deep. They were not allowed to be near the pond, and neither girl could swim. The front yard's where they played, and the front and the backyard were separated. It wasn't by a fence, but it was a large berm, and it, this berm was described as being used as a roadway for farm equipment. The berm was several feet taller than the girls, and it was about eight feet high in some places. The girls knew not to go over the berm or near the pond and they obeyed the rules. And because they did obey, they were permitted to play outdoors in the front yard only without supervision. One afternoon, the girls could hear some music playing and it sounded like a circus and that excited the girls. 
It was the sound of a traveling circus show, and it was nearby. Molly asked, can we go? Julia, being the older one, said no. No, we should ask first. But Molly pleaded. Molly suggested that they stand on top of the berm just to get a good look. From the roadway on top of the berm, they could see a merry-go-round. To the left of the farm pond was a merry-go-round like nothing they'd ever seen before. It was huge and it looked like the horses were alive and it was spinning, it was spinning fast, too fast to get on or off and it was hovering above the ground. Julia says we crossed over to the other side of the berm and sat back and just watched. They didn't go near it, but it was hypnotic and at some point they lost consciousness, but she said that they no way had fallen asleep. Meanwhile, back at the farmhouse, the girls were being called for lunch. Three different times they were called, but they couldn't be seen. The women started to panic, and Grandpa Jeb and their dad searched the farm while the women spoke to the sheriff. A large group showed up right away to search for the girls, and when the search came up empty, they believed that the girls were in the pond and a boat was brought in to check that pond for their bodies. One of the boatmen then called out, We got them, Jeb. We got them both. While on the pond, one of the searchers happened to look over, and he saw the girls laying still in the grass, both appearing to be deeply asleep. But the commotion woke them up. According to family members, the boatman looked over to the berm and nothing was there. He looked again only a few seconds later, and when he looked, they were both suddenly just there, and no one understood it. No one cared since they were safe. They'd been gone for four hours. It's a blank slate what happened. They felt as if they had just fallen asleep. Except for a few rare occasions, the family members never spoke about it again. And after that day, Julia and her sister were never close again. They rarely played together. They both became more serious and less playful. And after the incident, Julia went from being a mediocre student to an exceptionally good one. She understood con concepts that she previously had trouble with. Molly lost her laugh and was never the same again. Julia had become uncomfortable with Molly after that. Molly was brooding, withdrawn, and she had a lot of trouble in school. Both the kids had changed. Molly never spoke with Julia regarding the incident, even on her deathbed. Molly refused to speak of it ever. Julia's dreams and what she thinks actually happened that day or below. She had years of nightmares and phobias following the incident. Two recurring dreams are what she talks about 25 years later. And she says, They took us. 
I can see them as shadow people, and then they become solid. We were taken into a white room, like a clinical field. They were gray, and there were taller ones speaking, saying, don't be afraid, we won't hurt you. She could see stainless steel probes, and she was probed in her nose. And then she says, they did something to me down there that I knew I wouldn't be able to have children. And Molly, they did something to me down there too. They put something in my eye and it hurt so much. I thought that I'd lost my mind and they took my virginity and my innocence. As an adult, Molly became dependent on pain meds and had no close emotional relationships. Julia passed away shortly after her interview with Terry Lovelace at the age of 70. So I've heard the calls from all of you out there. If you want to hear some more search and rescue stories, I have another one for you today from a search and rescue officer and it goes with more stairs in the woods. The next person I talked to was E.W., a former trainer who now works as an EMT. He still comes to ops like this to help out, but he doesn't work full-time for us anymore. He specialized in finding lost kids. He just seemed to have a sixth sense when it came to knowing where they'd gone. He's a legend among the more senior vets, but he gets embarrassed if you compliment him on his work. He sat down with me at dinner one evening, and we ended up swapping stories. Most of them were just casual, but when we got on the subject of our weirder calls, I mentioned that I had a buddy who'd gone up a set of stairs. He kind of got quiet and asked me if I'd heard of a little boy who disappeared from his park a few years back. I hadn't, so he told me the story. They were out looking for this 11-year-old boy, Joey, who'd gone missing near a river. Of course, the first thought was that he'd fallen in and drowned, but when they brought out the dogs, they led the SAR officers away from the river and up into a very densely forested area. When we do searches for people, we search in a grid pattern and we search every box of the grid incredibly thoroughly. What EW's team noticed right away was that a very strange pattern was emerging. Dogs in alternating boxes were picking up Joey's scent, but losing it when they overlapped with another box. If you think of a checkerboard, Joey's scent was being picked up in random black squares, but never in the red ones. This, of course, didn't make any sense because how could the kid bounce from area to area without leaving a scent in each place that he passed. E.W. and his partner 
passed into a new box of the grid and E.W. notices a set of stairs about 50 yards away. He tells his partner that they need to go check near it, but his partner flat out refuses. He tells E.W. that he's made it a point never to go near any stairs he sees, and that while it may be routine, he's not to pretend that it's normal. He tells E.W. that he'll wait in sight while E.W. checks. E.W. says he was irritated, but he felt for the guy and didn't push him on the subject. I walked over to the stairs. They were small, kind of like stairs in a basement. I don't really feel strongly one way or another about them. The stairs, I mean. So I wasn't scared or anything. I guess I'm like everyone else, and I just prefer not to think about them too much. Anyway, I went over and I could see that there was something lying on the bottom step, sort of curled up. My heart sinks because, of course, you always hope for the best. And we were confident that we were going to find this kid alive because he'd only been missing for a few hours. But I knew right away that it was him and he was dead. He was curled up in a little ball on the step, holding his stomach. It looked like he'd been in horrible pain when he died, but he didn't see any blood except on his lips and chin. I radioed in that I'd found him and we got his body back to command. That poor family, they were devastated. The parents couldn't understand how he'd be dead because he'd only been gone for such a short amount of time. And on top of that, we didn't have any obvious cause of death, which just made it worse. I figured he'd probably eaten something poisonous since he was holding his stomach when I found him, but I didn't want to guess. It's hard enough to hear that your kid's dead, let alone have some stupid SAR guy guessing about what happened. They took him away, and I went home and tried not to think about it. I hate finding dead kids. I love this job, but it's one of the reasons I left. I've got two daughters, and the thought of losing them just that way was just... He choked up a little here. I'm not great with emotional stuff like that, and, and it's always sort of awkward to see a grown man cry. So I didn't really know what to do. He pulled himself together, eventually, and he kept going. We don't always hear back from the coroners about a case of death. It's not really our job to know, I guess, and sometimes if they think it's foul play, they won't tell us because of legal bullshit. But I've got a friend who works for the sheriff's department, and he'll usually pass along any interesting info if I ask. In this case, though, I actually got a call from him about a week later. He asks if I remember the kid, and yeah, of course I do. And he says some seriously weird shit is going on. He tells me, E.W. man, you're going to think I'm crazy, but the coroner has no idea what happened to this kid. He's never seen anything like it. My friend girl goes on to tell me that when the coroner opened up the kid, he couldn't even believe what he was seeing. The kid's organs were like Swiss cheese. Quarter-sized holes were punched, clean through just about every single organ this kid had. Aside from his heart and lungs, 
His colon, his stomach, his kidneys, and even one of his testicles were full of these clean holes. My friend said the coroner described it as if someone had taken a hole punch and punched holes out of everything. They were so neat. But the kid didn't have a scratch on him. There were no entry or exit wounds. The closest anyone there had ever seen like it was a guy who'd filled himself full of buckshot a year or so back while cleaning his rifle. No one had a clue what could possibly have caused it. My friend asked me if I'd ever heard of anything like it, or if we'd had similar cases in the past, but I'd never seen or heard of anything like that, and I told him I wasn't going to be of any help to him. As far as I know, the coroner determined the cause of death as something like massive internal bleeding, but no one knows what really happened. I've never been able to forget that kid. I have nightmares about it sometimes. I don't let my kids go in the woods alone, and when we go together, I never let them out of my sight. I used to love it out there, but that case and a couple others just sort of ruined it for me. Dinner was over, so we started to clean up and go back to our cabins. Before we went our separate ways, he put his hand on my shoulder and looked at me really close. He tells me that there's bad things out there, things that don't care if we have families or lives or that we can think and feel. He tells me to be careful, and he walks away. I didn't get a chance to talk to him again, but that story stuck with me. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at petey at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.